Open your Bibles, please, to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers 23. And let's consider an opening passage of Scripture there to lead us into a few short, simple considerations of what great things the Lord has done for us. Numbers 23 takes us to the eastern front as Israel came out of Egypt, came up around the Red Sea, the Jordan River, and then crossed westward over into Canaan and took it under Joshua. But being in numbers, we're on the eastern front. That means we're on the eastern side of the Jordan River where Moab and the Ammonites dwelt, the two sons by Lot and the incest with his daughters, enemies of Israel. Balak, the king of Moab, has sought to hire Balaam, a false prophet, to curse Israel, as opposed to, to wanting to meet them in battle. And here are one of the prophecies, here is one of the prophecies that Balaam gives. When he's supposed to be cursing, he in turn blesses. And listen to the blessing. Numbers 23, verse 18. He is Balaam. And he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me. Thou son of Zippor, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of an unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. Amen and amen. Those are the words of Balaam by the inspiration of God, directing him to bless Israel and to declare some fantastic things about God's plan for Jacob and Israel. Different names for the same thing because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. First, in verse 19, God doesn't repent like men. So what he's committed to do, he's going to do and he doesn't change And that was to bless the church of God under the Old Testament. Verse 21, God did not behold iniquity in Jacob nor perverseness in Israel because God is merciful to his children and his church. They were sinners. There was perversity in them. But God never deals with his children after their iniquities or they would not stand. 
And so he's pointing out here that God's going to treat Israel differently than he treats Moab and the other nations of Canaan. I've taught through this before, phrase by phrase, and now is not the time. Verse 20, let's skip 22 as well. Verse 23, surely there is no enchantment, neither is there any divination. These are two words of sorcery where you're invoking the devil to bring judgment or punishment or pain upon a group of people. And there isn't any divination. There isn't any enchantment against Israel because God is on their side. And and Balak could mark his calendar. Balaam is basically saying in the second half of this verse, go ahead and mark your calendar from this time forward. Anybody that looks at the history of Israel is going to say, what hath God wrought? And my brethren, that is not a question. The word what usually introduces a question, but this is introducing a statement, and thus the exclamation point at the end of it. These words are Balaam's words about Israel's military success at taking the land of Canaan. What hath God wrought? And it was an incredible victory. The Moabites were defeated. The Ammonites were defeated. The seven nations of Canaan were destroyed. The 70 cities of Canaan were taken. The houses with furniture were taken. The dug wells, the planted vineyards, the city walls, all the infrastructure was taken by the people of God. And they dwelt in those houses, populated those cities, drank from those vineyards and were blessed by God's powerful blessing upon them. And there's no enchantment against them. But that was 3,500 years ago. God did something 2,000 years ago that we ought to say, What hath God wrought? And that is what I want to share with you. From this time, why don't we, as we turn to Luke 10, stop off for a short rest in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks prophecy there. And let's remind ourselves that God operates by His timetable. And we should be thankful that He sometimes shares glimpses of it with us. In Daniel chapter 9, the last four verses, 70 weeks of years, or a total of 490 years, or 483 years until Jesus was baptized. The appointment and anointment and proclamation of the Messiah. Look at what we're, look what the time is going to bring upon Israel. Verse 24 of Daniel 9. 70 weeks. And I have been through this passage before, phrase by phrase, and cannot do it again now. That is 70 weeks of years. 490 years in total. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, and to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, that was issued by Cyrus, in about 456 B.C., from that commandment, which the Bible details in several places, unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks, and threescore and two weeks, 
That's 69 weeks of years. That's 483 years. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. That's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't die for himself. He died for the people that God had given him to redeem. And verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And when Jesus died on the cross and cried out, it is finished. The veil in the temple, as thick as your palm, put in place by a team of horses, 60 feet high, was rent from top to bottom, and the way into God was opened, and there were no more ceremonial sacrifices necessary to be in the presence of God. From that time forth, shouldn't we say, what hath God wrought? Look at some of these words. To make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to anoint the most holy, to make an end of sins. These are wonderful promises which we've dealt with in detail before. And so we leave the rest area and go on into Luke 10. Luke 10. Oh Lord, Your Word is so full of great things that You have done for us. Those poor Old Testament saints had nothing in comparison to what we have. Look at Luke 9 and verse 1 so we can get a context. Then he called, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. Now remember, there's no enchantment or divination against Israel. Can we do better than that? Jesus giving Sea of Galilee little rowboat fishermen power over devils and diseases. 10.1 After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also. Not just the 12, but now 70 other preachers. Also, He ordained and sent them out in a similar fashion to what He did the 12, and sent them two and two before His face into every city and place whither He Himself would come. We come to verse 17. Those 70 had been sent out to do what the 12 also did. Then the 70 came back to report to the Lord. And we take up right here. Verse 17 of Luke 10. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through Thy name. These 70 secondary preachers of the Gospel had authority to cast out devils. And they had by the preaching of the Gospel brought the message of Jesus Christ, which the devil cannot stand. Thus we should love it, embrace it, speak it, and talk of Him. People worry about the devil more than they should. They should worry about themselves, whether they love the Lord Jesus Christ and are obeying Him. If you're walking with Him and resisting the devil, the Bible says the devil will flee from you. He's a defeated being. He knows full well that Jesus Christ is going to torment him very soon. On earth, the devils would come and fall down before the Lord Jesus Christ and worship Him and say, We know who Thou art. 
Thou art the Holy One of God. Art thou come to torment us before the time? They know their eternal destiny, and that is torment in the lake of fire by Jesus Christ. The man Christ Jesus will throw the greatest angelic beings into the lake of fire. What hath God wrought? Rejoice with me. I've only got a few minutes. And I've got pages and pages of things God has done that we should rejoice in. And it should change our lives. Jesus said unto them in verse 18, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. I saw your effect. I saw him fall in my divine nature when he was cast out of heaven a long time ago and was cast into the earth. I am beholding the things that are taking place in the spiritual realm because I'm on the earth and I'm about to die and I'm about to be given all authority over principalities and power, thrones and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but in the world to come. Jesus saw it all and he saw the success that they were telling him about and he adds to it in verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Did Simon the sorcerer hurt Philip the evangelist, let's call him Philip the deacon, in the city of Samaria? Or did Philip the deacon turned evangelist take the city of Samaria by storm? Did you read it last night? He turned that city upside down by preaching Christ. And those people that had been in subjection to Simon the sorcerer for a long time were immediately freed from that bondage. It told you that. Did you read it? Because he preached Christ and baptized them. And he didn't even have apostolic authority. That's why they had to contact Jerusalem to get apostles to come in order to lay hands on them and pray for them to get the gift of the Holy Ghost being the Holy Spirit's presence did not fall on them because there weren't there wasn't an apostolic representation there. And in the early days of the church, there had to be an apostolic representation in order to magnify the apostles. Right. And so Peter and James came up there and John and preached. And you read all about that last evening. You know, where do you want to turn? Do you want to go further into the book of Acts when there were seven Jewish gypsies that thought they were exorcists and they found a man possessed of the devil and they thought they would cast the devil out of him? And the devil in that single man said, Jesus I know and Paul I know. But who are ye? And one man jumped seven men, stripped them naked, and chased them out into the street. That's the power of the devil. But notice the name recognition. We know Jesus, and we know Paul. It doesn't matter if they know us very well. But what name comes out of your mouth, and by what name do you live your life? It should be the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will leave you alone. It's when we start to play with worldly inputs that the devil will be, will be there to take us down. Let's live a virtuous, holy, noble, godly, spiritual existence for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm just working up to my second point I want to make. The first one was, what hath God wrought? 
I love those words. Especially with an exclamation point because I want my life to be an exclamation point. I want your lives to be an exclamation point. For the glory of God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They came with joy. Verse 17. He gave them additional power. But now He said this in verse 20. The Lord Jesus Christ to the 70. Notwithstanding, in spite of your joy, and in spite of your excitement, and in spite of the great change in spiritual events that is now taking place, by me taking the ascendancy over the power of the devil, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not. And he doesn't say not to rejoice at all, though that is what the words appear to be. It's a comparison being made here. Don't let that be your fulfillment, and don't let that be the most exciting thing in your life. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, they weren't supposed to complain about it, Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What hath God wrought to write our names in heaven? And the Bible tells us when they were written there, before the foundation of the world. You've got to read Revelation 13.8 and Revelation 17.8. And see that our names were written there before the foundation of the world. That's when God chose us in Christ Jesus. That's when God gave us His purpose and grace in Christ Jesus was before the world began to have our names inscribed in the book of life. It is no problem for God. The prophecy in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 where Cyrus is named and his name is spelled correctly. C-Y-R-U-S. 150 years before he was born. God doesn't deal in time like you and me. We don't know somebody that hasn't been born yet. But God puts names in the book of life. And everything depends upon the book of life. The most frightening verses to me, as a child growing up under a Baptist pastor father, were the last five verses of Revelation chapter 20. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And like so many got up here and testified today, I used to ask myself this question because supposedly I had asked Jesus to be my Savior when I was three the first time. And the brother or two that got up here and said how many times they went through that same process, I went through that same process many times. But this is the way as a teenager I asked myself, when you invited Jesus into your heart, Was it of a sufficient character that God bent over in His throne and wrote your name in the book of life? Not a chance. Because most of the time I'm not even living like I did it. Not a chance. Well, that's not how it's done anyway, so I was being led down a primrose path to error. Because God had written my name there before the foundation of the world And any belief I have on Him and any obedience that I have to Him is the consequence and the result, the evidence and the proof of eternal life, not the conditions or means for it. What hath God wrought? He gets all the glory with the exclamation point. There's There's three key observations we need to make right here. God and Jesus Christ fully know exactly what they have given us. Is that fair? That's easy, isn't it? God and Jesus Christ fully know what they have given us. 
So God and Jesus Christ, Jesus in this particular context, specifically knew that he had given the 70 power over the devils through his name. Second key observation. God and Jesus Christ fully perceive our joy, zeal, and priorities. Did Jesus detect that they were a little too excited about casting out devils rather than eternal life? Yes, He did. Because my observation number two is that God and Jesus Christ fully know us. And they perceive our joy, our zeal, and our priorities. Third, God and Jesus Christ fully expect us to have appropriate, proper, right, spiritual priorities. And that priority is having our name written in the book of life is greater than any casting out of devils. What hath God wrought? We want to just think about that in the light of a number of things that He has done for us. Look at 1 John 3. 1 John 3. Let me back up what our song leader said a moment ago. 1 John chapter 3. I have four or five pages of these. There's about uh, ten per page, and we're just going to hit a couple of them because the time is drawing rapidly to a close. But that doesn't matter because what matters is that you understand the priority that you ought to have when we walk out of here, and that is to say with an exclamation point, What hath God wrought? Because He has wrought more for you and me than He ever did for Jacob and Israel in the land of Canaan. We are blessed abundantly with salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. In 1 John chapter 3, uh, let's go to chapter 4 for the moment. Verse 9, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Nobody loves you enough to send anybody to die for you. But God loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die for us. We say, what hath God wrought? It's an unbelievable definition of love. Herein is love. Not that we loved God. That is not a good definition of love. But that He loved us. Come back to chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. What hath God wrought that we have been adopted? Adoption is, is obviously the capstone of our salvation. Justification? Are you kidding? You're going to be satisfied with justification? All that does is get you out of the electric chair. It just restores you to a position of neutrality. Unless you fully understand it. And then it restores you to the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ does not make you a son. That's a special act of God to adopt us as His children. You know, when we look at redemption, we were bought back from the penalty of sin and what we are going to have to suffer. And we just keep rising up the facets of salvation until we get to this one that is right here in these first three verses. Behold! What's another interpretation for behold? What hath God wrought? Behold! 
what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. In each of these cases, the context tells us to move to greater obedience because of what God has done for us. Here, it's verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. You eight, six of you were baptized today, eight of you joined with this congregation. Behold what manner of love that God would adopt us. That is incredible. It puts us in the inner circle. When you go to Revelation chapter 5, there is God who was, who is, and who shall ever be, sitting on His throne, and the Lord Jesus Christ at His right hand sitting on His throne, and there are right with them the four and twenty elders and the four beasts representing the church and its ministry. Outside them are the angels that are our servants. Outside them are all creation in heaven, earth, and the sea. All in Revelation chapter 5. There are three choirs that sing. There are the redeemed, there are the angels, and there's all creatures. We are the inner circle by the adoption of God to make us sons. And He is not ashamed to call us brethren. That is unbelievable. We are the sons of God. The angels are our servants. What hath God wrought? We have to keep saying to ourselves as we think about all the things that He's wrought for us. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, incarnation of Jesus Christ, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Without controversy, that gospel is great. When you think about each aspect of those six details of the gospel of Jesus Christ, do you know what we have to say? What hath God wrought? The incarnation of Christ to His ascension into heaven. It's called unsearchable riches of Christ. It's called the unspeakable gift. Those who understand it rejoice with joy unspeakable. Because what hath God wrought? We are made accepted in the Beloved. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Very quickly, a few months ago I was able to preach to you about accepted in the Beloved. What a privilege that is. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have a long sentence running from verse 3 down to the end of verse 6. Verse 3 tells us that all spiritual blessings are in Christ. Verse 4 tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Verse 5 tells us we were predestinated to that adoption I was just telling you about according to the good pleasure of His will. It's God's will, so we have to say, What hath God wrought? But then look at verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. When we stand before God, the most important issue is not whether we have accepted Jesus, but whether God accepts us in Jesus. And this tells us that to the praise of the glory of His grace, He hath made us, God simply made us, accepted in the Beloved by choosing us in Christ Jesus. So that when God looks at us, He sees Christ and He accepts us, because we're in Him. Romans 5. Your watch is fast. Romans 5. Why do babies die? You know, we sometimes in the past believed that there was an age of accountability. 
that if there was an age of accountability, then no child could ever die under that age of accountability because they're not accountable. The whole thing's a farce. There's nothing taught like that in the Bible. Babies die in Romans 5, 12 through 14. Tell us that babies die without ever having broken a commandment themselves because they broke it in Adam. We do believe in original sin. We do believe that we are all responsible for Adam. It's a, it's a terrible doctrine if you're not ready to submit to Scripture. Or it's a glorious doctrine. We deserve it. We, had, we made our choice for death in the Garden of Eden in our first parents. And so it says, verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's 2,500 years of world history. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Adam took the position of a representative for the entire human race, and his sin caused them all to be sinners, and thus they all died. That's the Word of God. For 2,500 years, they didn't break a commandment like Adam did, but they died because Adam had stood in as their representative for them, and that's what verses 12 through 14 teach. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so... In the matter specified by one man, death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned in that one man. And it goes on to say this over and over in different ways to add to the luster of this incredible doctrine. But 19 is the shortest, and so I'll read that one to you. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. We, we're in a serious predicament. There's no faith on our part that can undo the disobedience on his part. Because He is a representative for us. There's no innocence by a child that, is, that undoes the condemnation that is in Adam. So it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Amen. What hath God wrought? He brought about the second Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15 it says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so we have the greater Adam, the second Adam, the last Adam, as he is described in the New Testament, that delivers us from the first Adam. What hath God wrought? He arranged that first covenant relationship with Adam, but He arranged a second covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we get into Christ? So that we are delivered from the first Adam? We're chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. Look at the other things that we could think of. In Revelation chapter 5, Almighty God had a book in His hand, the book of the everlasting covenant, because as soon as they opened that book, the choirs of heaven burst into singing about salvation and redemption. There was no man found in heaven, earth, or under the earth that could open that book, but God sent the Lord Jesus Christ, the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, to open that book. What do we say? What hath God wrought? What should we be thankful for? These things. Our first parents had a flaming cherub put up to keep them away from the tree of life. They could have eaten the tree of life three times a day forever and lived forever, but they chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once they did that, God threw them out of the garden, set up a flaming cherub to keep the way of the tree of life. What has our God wrought? That tree of life is growing in heaven. And Revelation 2.7 says that those that overcome shall eat of the tree of life. 
It bears its fruit in twelve in the twelve months of the year, and we may freely eat of it. What hath God wrought? He's made us kings and priests unto our God. We're in the inner circle of heaven. We can mock death and the grave. O oh, death, where is thy sting? O oh, grave, where is thy victory? What hath God wrought? Brethren, there are things we should be excited about. The devil has been defeated and an open show made of him. We shall soon trample Satan under our own feet. We shall judge angels according to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. We have an eternal inheritance, a new heaven and a new earth, bodies being glorified, not one lost or plucked out of his hand. The gift of the Holy Ghost, which is God with us, perpetually saved by childbearing. What hath God wrought? He cursed Eve's childbearing in Genesis chapter 3, but it's through childbearing of a woman that gave us the Lord Jesus Christ. So in 1 Timothy 2.15 it says, Notwithstanding, she, referring to women in general under a collective noun, she shall be saved in childbearing. How are women saved from the curse of Eden? Because Mary gave birth to the Savior of women. Angels wanted, if angels desire to look into these things, what hath God wrought for us to have something that great? He's made up the tabernacle of David again with us Gentiles. You need a lawyer, and you have one. Listen, you have the greatest calamity facing you coming up very soon when you face Almighty God, and He has a lawyer chosen for you, and it's His Son. If you could go to court, and know that your lawyer was the judge's son, would you have confidence to go? Would you have more confidence if you knew that that judge's son had already paid the penalty of death? The fine was not $50. It was the penalty of death for you. And he was going to plead that on your behalf with the judge. What hath God wrought? I don't know how to tell you. We can only get started and look at it a little tiny bit. But God has done great things for us. No matter how we measure salvation, by its wisdom, by its power, by its perpetuity, by its person, by its security, what hath God wrought? It is altogether unsearchable and unspeakable. Truly, what hath God wrought? Paul reasoned logically and powerfully that we owe Jesus Christ our all. For we thus judge, that if one died for all, then all were dead. And they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them and gave himself for them. Jesus warned the church at Sardis that their works were not perfect before God. Ephesus had lost their first love. Laodicea was lukewarm. Why? They got their priorities all mixed up, messed up and mixed up. What hath God wrought? Paul was bound to give thanks for the Thessalonians because God had from the beginning chosen them to salvation. So he said, we are bound to always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord. We should boast in all that God has done for us and share it with each other and push this church to higher ground to love the Lord Jesus, the Savior, more and more. That poor Gadarene delivered from the devil wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, 
you go home and tell your friends what great things God hath done for you. And the last verse of Mark 5 tells us he went home and published it and it, it spread abroad. May God bless you to think about four words. What hath God wrought? And to think to yourself about some of the things that God's wrought for you. Some of the works of salvation and blessing that are upon you. It's unbelievable. We're joint heirs with Christ. We're the sons of God. We have a new heaven and a new earth coming. It sounds so fantastic. The mind can hardly comprehend it or really lay hold of it. But it's the truest things you're ever going to hear. Because everything that you look around and see with your eyes is temporal and it's going to disappear. It's going to melt with fervent heat. But the things that I'm telling you are eternal. And they're real. We walk by faith, not by sight. May this have been a good day to be in the house of the Lord to do just that. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.